Hey, welcome back to Popcorn Politics. It's Dermot and Jack, and we're here talking about The Great Dictator, a film that is 80 years old, the week we're recording this. Not the week we're putting it out, but the week we're recording it, it is 80 years old, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah, we, we didn't actually realise it was 80 years old this week. It's just a happy little accident. Yeah. This was Jack's pick, so any complaints about that can go to him, not to me. Yep. I am completely innocent in this. For those of you who don't know, this is a Charlie Chaplin classic. I believe it's the highest grossing film he ever made. And it is it is in many ways an incredible achievement. It was it's a parody of Adolf Hitler, written in the couple of years leading up to World War Two, and then released in nineteen forty. So before America had actually joined the war, but while the war had begun to rage. Yeah, some of the background to this movie itself is actually really interesting. So it's, it's, it is Charlie Chaplin's, apparently it is his highest grossing movie. Um, Charlie Chaplin, obviously, probably the most famous comedic actor of all time, maybe, you know, performer of all time. It's his highest grossing movie. It's also his first ever film, a feature-length film, that's a talkie that, that he speaks in. Uh, he gives a particularly incredible speech toward the end of the movie, which we have to talk about later on. But uh, the movie itself, it came about after... Chapman watched a Nazi movie, a Nazi director, Lenny Riefenstahl. She, I believe it was The Triumph of the Will. The Triumph of the Will, yeah. Yeah, she she had the two big ones. She had Olympia, which is about Berlin Olympics, and then she had The Triumph of the Will, which was just showing off the kind of, or intended to show off anyway, the greatness of the Aryan race. Yeah, and apparently after watching that movie somewhere in New York, he, uh, he just fell over the place laughing. He thought the whole spectacle of it was ridiculous. He felt that it had to be made fun of, so he studied uh, watched over, poured over um, all sorts of newsreel footage of Hitler as much as he could, L- watched all of his speeches as much as he could, and then created this movie. And apparently a bunch of different studios, United Artists, I think, was the studio for this movie. They tried to convince him not to release it because at the time Britain was trying to, they had a policy of appeasement. They didn't want to get into, into, into conflict with uh, Nazi Germany at the time, so they were kind of, hesitant to release a movie that was overly critical of the, the Fuhrer, and uh, America as well was trying to be neutral. So everyone in the studio yeah, yeah. was trying to convince him not to make it, but he was determined to do it. Yeah, and not only did he star in it, he directed it, he produced it, and he wrote it. So And he composed is, it. And he composed it as well. So Well, he co-composed it. So, yeah, okay, this is... Okay, okay, he co-composed it. Yeah. yeah, but this is this is sort of his magnum opus. And it's quite a film. So what it's basically about is that the film starts with this Jewish private who is fighting for a central powers nation called Tumania. And he saves a wounded... In the First World War. Yeah, in in 1918. It's sort of the the Western Front tended to be the First World War, or it's kind of alluding to the First World War. He suffers an injury trying to save a wounded pilot and loses his memory. And he spends 20 years in uh, the hospital for amnesia and for returning to, he escapes essentially and returns to work as a barber in a ghetto. But what's turned out is that the country is now governed by a dictator called Adenoid Hinkle. And Hinkle is a not at all subtle parody of Adolf Hitler. And it's about, the film is about Hinkle's attempts to solidify his control of the country and his attempts to build this new 
global superpower that will allow him to take over the world, while at the same time, the Jewish barber is essentially living through the consequences of Hinkle's actions. And both these characters are played by Chaplin. That's something that's really interesting, actually. Chaplin playing both of the characters is is mentioned at the beginning where he talks about, or it's it's mentioned right there on the, the on the title card where it says any any similarities between uh, the leader Heinkel and the Jewish barber are coincidental, which is pretty funny. But Hitler and Chaplin, Chaplin, sorry, Hitler and Chaplin actually have a pretty similar background. So both of them were born within a few weeks of each other. Uh, both of them were born into very very poor backgrounds. They struggled for a long time when they were young, and Chaplin, for a long, long time, whenever he thought of Hitler, he thought, there but for the grace of God goes me. And so that was a real big influence on him, especially playing both parts. And obviously, they also look similar as well. There's the moustache, obviously, uh, but even their build and their height and everything, they're, they're quite similar in appearance. So Chaplin lampooning Hitler is just a match made in heaven as far as the satire is concerned. That's right. And the reason that he played a Jewish character was actually a reference to the fact that many of the Nazis believed that Chaplin himself was Jewish. Hey, he wasn't. They kept, they kept writing about him being Jewish, mm. but uh, he, he wasn't. I think that the, let's talk about the man himself. Let's talk about Hinkle. So Hinkle is maybe the least subtle piece of comedy I've ever seen before. He is a very unsubtle parody of Adolf Hitler. He has his uh, sidekicks, hair garbage who is party of Goebbels, and Herr Herring, who's a party of Goering. And he, basically, he wants to build the greatest army in the world, or he claims to have the greatest army in the world, the greatest navy in the world, and that any problems that the country has in the detail, that, you know, the quality of the sawdust and the bread is incredibly poor, and the like, they wish to blame that on the Jews. And so, again, a very unsubtle reference to Hitler. You and I were talking about this before we started recording, but there's a lot of things in this film that I don't want to say they don't hold up, but that you can tell that he's missing the context that everyone was missing at the time. That the extent that the Nazis were going to was unfathomable in its evil. Yeah. And he he said that if he, he said in later years that if he'd known about it, he wouldn't have gone through it. But there's a through line to this that the the attacks on the Jews are used as a way of of distracting from the poverty and the the general kind of crapness of people's lives, you know, and how they aren't truly great. But in fact, that while they'll say throwaway lines, but oh, we must kill all the Jews, it's kind of treated with a certain level of oh, this this is a smokescreen. It's clear that Chaplin, and understandably, because. Until the Holocaust happened, it was, it, it seems like unimaginable. Yeah. He couldn't imagine that they were actually true about all that. What do you, what do you think about how Hinkle is portrayed? Yeah, well, I think Hinkle, he's obviously a joke. He's a cartoon. He's a, he's a Charlie Chaplin character. Um, the movie is actually kind of, it's very, very aware. Apparently it was one of the first movies in, first Hollywood movies to really address anti-Semitism properly. Um, now they knew that there was some serious, you know, horrible, horrible crimes being committed against Jewish populations all around Europe, especially you know, all around Europe anyway, but especially under Nazi Germany. But uh, I should clarify, I don't think that they the, the crimes that they are aware of, they don't make light of like, no. the way they show the Nazi police in the ghetto as 
and I don't mean this as an insult, but cartoonishly thuggish. Like, because these people are in, were in truth cartoonish. Yeah. You know, the horror, uh, like just how needlessly cruel they would be. I think that they did a really good job of portraying that. Yeah, this, this is something that's, that's actually really interesting because I think this is probably the last time Hollywood properly satirized or made fun of or lampooned Hitler until I think Mel Brooks, you know, like for, for decades afterward, they could never really come to terms with making fun of something related to the Holocaust, essentially. Mm. And fair enough. I mean, yeah, you, you said before, Charlie Chapman, if he had known what was going on, he would never have made the movie. But uh, the, in, in the movie itself, they don't shy away from anything at all. I mean, this is a movie made in 1940 for mm. an American audience. So my grandparents would have been in their 20s at the time. You know, we're, this is a really old movie. You know, you, you hate to see the amount of censorship laws or anything like that that it had to go through. But at one point, Chaplin's character, his other character, the um, we're going back to Hingo in a bit, I guess, but uh, his other character, the barber, is running away from the stormtroopers in the ghetto. He's running back and forth around the street. And they tie a noose around his neck and tie him up to a flagpole or to a street lamp. You know, they're about to kill him. In a, they're lynching the guy. And they make a joke out of it. You know, they, it's, it, it straddles a line between being completely harrowing and hilarious as well. It's incredibly well done. I've never seen something done as extreme as that in in any other movie, or as well as that in any other movie I can think of. I think that's a really, really fair point. That it the film doesn't shy away from the horror. There's one bit where a Jewish man is being taken away, and he says, "You know, you have no right," and they just carry on. And the point of the film is, well, actually, these guys are in power, and they don't actually care about the laws. Yeah, they just simply wish to enact cruelty, and I think that's a really it's such a small moment, but it's so powerful. And, yeah. you know, there are so many moments where the Nazis are kind of treated as a, a joke, where they get smashed in the head with a, a saucepan or they get covered in paint. But deep down, you never feel like they are not something not only threatening, but genuinely terrifying. They're menacing. They me- Menacing, incredibly menacing. Um, I mean, there's, there's that one moment when we're introduced to um, the love interest in the movie. I think I Hannah, I think her name is. That's right. Hannah, played by Paulette Goddard, uh, who incidentally was sort of secretly kind of married to Chaplin for a little bit. She was. Yeah, she, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were married yeah, for a while. Weren't they? they were married in Mexico, but it's unclear how like legal the marriage was. I only I, I only scratched the surface of this. But that, that's a whole yeah, I mean, different story. I mean, like we, we have a whole separate podcast about the Hollywood gossip from the first half of the 20th century like that's a whole different podcast that's our second podcast but uh the the, the scene where you're introduced to hannah and the stormtroopers steal all the um all the fruit and veg and just pelt her with it it's cartoonish it's it's something you'll see from like an american high school movie or something like that but it is brutal and it just shows how petty and how vindictive these people are their behavior is cartoonish but her reaction isn't yeah do you know like we kind of see that and it's kind of like oh it's fun joke but you actually see the physical toll it takes on her and the emotional toll it takes on her. And you, you're right. You're, this film really straddles a line between comedic and horrific. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because when you think of these old movies and you think of, you know, their cartoonish slapstick relationship with violence, you know, knock people over the head and they just dance around for a while, which Chaplin does all the time. Mm. Uh, but if you were to do that in real life and if someone was to have that reaction, it would be quite traumatic and life changing. They actually kind of address like how, how, terrible some of these moments are or this violence is to the person they're receiving end to at least some extent anyway which is kind of weird to see in a black and white movie 
we'll talk about, about the stormtroopers in a minute because there's, there's something I really like, something I heard about them that I really want to talk about. But just kind of circle back to Hinkle himself. I think he is a better portrayal of just a general dictator than Admiral General Aladdin in uh, last week's movie, the, the the dictator. Yeah, no, I agree with that because Al- Aladdin feels very unfocused. You get the sense from Hinkle that he has a goal and he intends to to see it through. His goal is world domination as well, which, and he has an ideology, you know, their ideology is, is in many ways a really intelligent satire of appeasement, where they're like, we'll just invade Usterlicht, which is obviously a fake Austria, and no one will stand up. And then we'll invade somewhere else, and no one will stand up, and then we'll invade somewhere else. Garbage even says at one point, you know, the world is so effete, no one will be able to stand up to you. And, you know, this idea that they are the power that they say they are, it it does it feels much more real and much more unnerving than something like General Aladdin, who I don't know what he believes or you know what his aims are, other than to if someone tells him something he doesn't like, he executes them. Kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier on. I think that the, I think the thing that uh, about, about Hinkle in the movie versus Hitler in real life is that Hinkle in the movie is a bit more devoid of an ideology than I think Hitler would have actually been in real life. Because again, we, we, we mentioned this before, you know, they, they had no idea about the Holocaust yet. The Holocaust hadn't even started at that stage. But in the movie, it is very clear that Hinkle doesn't really care about the Jews. He doesn't really care about them that much. He'll stop his recriminations or his attacks on them if he thinks that he will benefit from stopping his attacks on them. Yeah, he, he stops it and everything goes back to normal within a second because uh, because he wants to get a bank loan from a Jew- and a Jewish banker is the only one who will actually sign off. He thinks he can get to sign off. Jewish banker called Epstein or so, Epstein. Yeah, it's definitely the, the film takes it. Chaplin understandably takes the view that this is all essentially bluster. I mean, it probably was to some extent with anything like that. It, it more than likely was. But, you know, remember at the end of, like, at the end of World War II when the Soviets were at the door or the gates of Berlin, he was still diverting military resources away from the war effort to exterminate the Jews. I mean, he, he clearly did believe that that was more, the more important thing to do. So like, there's no way Chaplin could have known that, obviously. But uh, yeah, I think the portrayal of the dictator in Hinkle is one of the best I've ever seen. He's just totally childish. He's, he's very, very mature, but done in a believable way. He's still charismatic when he wants to be, but he's utterly selfish and at the same time, quite diligent and uh, and really driven. No, he's incredibly diligent. I think that's a that's a really good portrayal of these dictators. Like it's weird that we're going to compare this maybe a bit more to the dictator by Sacha Baron Cohen. But one of the things that is unbelievable about him is that it seems like everything sounds easy for him, whereas actually these dictators do have to work very hard because you're always trying to keep people happy. Because if you don't, they're going to execute you. Yeah, and Hinkle is working incredibly hard to get his make his dream a reality oh yeah i mean there's there's, there's the scenes we find uh, that we follow him on his day-to-day in, like doing his day-to-day office work you know he wakes up and has about eight or ten different tasks going on at, at once he he runs into a room for about five seconds and he's got a, a painter and a sculptor trying to capture his image he goes into the next room and he pens a letter and you know he's all over the place he's frantic he's manic and he's he's, he's incredibly driven and then he, he sexually assaults his secretary which which isn't great I do like the one part where it talks about or where it kind of subverts that because you, you, you've been following his narrative for a while. You, you're seeing him engaged in 10 different activities at once and he's 
penning all sorts of letters, writing all sorts of orders and posting them all out and this and that and the other. And there's the big chest of drawers behind him, big filing cabinet. And it's a really, like, it's just a throwaway visual gag, but he turns around and he opens the cabinet up and it turns out it's just a big full-length mirror because he just wants to uh, look at himself. I, I thought that was that was hilarious. I thought that whole montage was actually really, really effective as well because it was a it was a satire on, and Chaplin did this a few times in the film about how so much of what the Nazis were actually doing to Germany was to bring about a, a regression. We see in the art that the Venus de Milo and the Thinker have been kind of repurposed to show the the salute. We see the terrible inventions that they're they're concocting. You know, the the parachute that you slap on your head, the bulletproof vest that doesn't work. Yeah, and you know, it's it's this basic satire of this this doesn't work. It's not just that it's a terrible, terrible system. They actually don't achieve anything. Now, yeah. as it turned out, that there were some things that they were incredibly unfortunately very good at achieving, but the idea to satirize them as being obsessed with being diligent and actually not being able to achieve a lot of things, while also going after them for the way in which they essentially destroy art yeah. for the means of putting forward their ideology thought was very very interesting well i will, I will say that the, the nazis uh like it, it is a bit of a trope that the nazis were more technologically advanced than, than the allies that that's kind of not entirely true oh no no i don't i don't mean that they were i mean in very in, in regards to the holocaust they were very oh, yeah. efficient at doing one yeah. particular thing but yeah yeah but by and large yeah they, they they're kind of the fascists propaganda about being incredibly good at getting things to work is 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 not true if no, you no, kind of even dig in slightly. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. And even at the end of the war, they kind of, the, the East and the West kind of follow the scientists just because they didn't want the other one to happen, really. But uh, yeah, one thing that I really did want to mention, just coming back to the, um, the stormtroopers, did you think it was weird that they all spoke in American accents? I think that, I mean, I didn't really even notice it in the film. The only one whose accent I thought kind of stood out was the love interest accent because it's like very much like a, a Hollywood American accent at the time, yeah. whereas everyone else has kind of like vaguely Eastern European accents, uh, in kind of the, the Jewish quarter. But no, although I think that that might have been just to emphasize that they were sort of more brutish than the more kind of sophisticated and refined officer class who all had British accents or specifically English accents. Yeah, potentially. But they, generally speaking, when people are doing that in movies, they, they tend to, uh, Throw on a bit of a Bill Cogney chimney sweep accent when they're trying to do that, uh, comparing them to the uh, the upper class officer core. Uh, I, I thought it was like a really, I, I think it was a really specific choice that you pick the American accents and actors for the uh, the role of the stormtroopers. Not only does it bring everything closer, it brings the violence closer to home. It does really criticize the American police and military outfits and everything like that, even in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, I just thought it was a really clever thing to do. And you have to remember as well that Chaplin did get into trouble for doing stuff like this later on. The Chap- Chap- Chaplin was a communist. He was a communist, yeah. So, yeah, it's not particularly surprising. Uh, yeah. like he he, didn't, he let, didn't go back to America for 20 years because of, because of HUAC, the uh, House Un-American Committee. Yeah, the House Un-American, um, uh, yeah, he, you know, the McCarthyism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he only went back, I think, for his lifetime achievement Oscar. Hmm. In uh, 1971 or two, yeah, but he he spent most of the rest of his life in uh, Switzerland, as far as more. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, and I think as well his politics are a major part. Look, 
you know, this is obviously a podcast where we talk about what is the kind of political messaging behind this. And I think you can't really ignore the writer and director's own personal politics. He mentions, we're going to get to the speech, I think at the end, the kind of the, the, the great speech. But he does sort of every now and again mention how the people are poor and the people aren't being tended to. There's a criticism early on of austerity where Hinkle is talking about how everyone will need to tighten their belts in order to stay great. Yeah. You know, there is a very clear left-wing ideology throughout this film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, completely. The really, it's a really strong one. What do you think about the, the Mussolini character? Do, 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 what was his name again? It was... No, the, names, the names are so ridiculous. The names are amazing. Um, the name, so uh, the Mussolini character, you were referring to Benzino Napolini, the Digodici of bacteria. He is, it's interesting actually, he, the, the gentleman who played him, Jackie Oki, actually got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the role. It's interesting to come up because so he is in many ways what Hinkle thinks of himself as. Hinkle has this idea of himself that he is almost the perfect man. He's powerful, he's strong, and he commands a room. And yet when the Digadice comes in and is boorish and is a lout and is loud and obnoxious, but is also sort of, in addition to being a fascist, quite a toxic masculinity incarnate. Yeah. He kind of puts Hinkle in his place in many ways. He does, yeah. Even like little things he does, like when he, he notes that the clock that bears Hinkle's face when they're they're being introduced, it's like two minutes off. That sort of thing, he just, he really just kind of cuts down Hinkle in so many ways. Yeah. And I think he's, he's very, and obviously the very entertaining play, very boorish. I thought it was an interesting choice to make him essentially an Italian-American stereotype. Yeah. The guy playing him is not Italian-American. He was from the Midwest, I think. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was great because they, the two of them, just just the, the competitions between them are just, just hilarious where the, the two of them are getting a shave and they both raise the chairs to keep trying to be above the other one. And the propaganda minister, um, Garbage, is talking to Hinkle about you know some little subtle things you can do, some subtle psychological tricks you can play. So he's going to enter into the far side of the room for the conference and he'll have the embarrassment of having to walk all the way across the room. The chair he'll be on will be lower than yours and you know, this, that and the other. And of course he comes in right behind Hinkle and he's just lights a match off the bust of Hinkle, you know, just completely undoes all this sort of stuff. And when they meet as well, the two of them want to get a photo taken and uh you know garbage has it all set out he's the he's the real pr spin master guy and he's yeah he, he he's Google's. yeah he's Goebbels. yeah he, yeah. he really is he's but he, he still he does modern propaganda media techniques he does modern pr techniques that still used today you know talks to the photographer make sure they both get in the shot neither is above the other you know they're both like he he, he has this conversation with the photographer and both dictators are just there trying to get like literally one up on the other one and uh, they're they're pushing each other back into the train and everything like that. And and politicians do this even today mm. when world leaders meet each other. They do that exact thing. It's brilliant. Well, the famous one was Donald Trump, and this is the only time we're going to compare Donald Trump to fascist everybody. But the famous one was Donald Trump with his handshake, you know, where he uh, where he would do the weird hand grabby thing to kind of show his dominance. Yeah, came this weird meme on like liberal Twitter when Macron did this like weird handshake backward to him. It was a whole thing. The, yeah, so the, these things, yeah, absolutely still happen in the modern day in, in both in classic old stupid ways and in brand new stupid ways. I think there was one as well. I think it was Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin. But I could be wrong on that. But they both went in to shake each other's hand. 
and one of them had to be on the the right hand side to get you know his full view in the camera uh, and so one of them quickly did that and then in order to counter it the other one gave a two-handed handshake and then in order to counter that the first one put his second hand in and then like they kept doing one up on each other and they wound up hugging and you know embracing each other and having a great old time in front of the international press. This is like Yu-Gi-Oh, man. You know, it's just constant <laughs> countering, activating exactly. trap guards. Exactly. Oh, I've got my trap guard. Oh, I've got a quick play. got a quick play spell guard. But you just wind up having two world leaders wrestling with each other because their press people tell them to position themselves in front of cameras in a certain way. Yeah. It's great. I think that, yeah, that whole section of the film was very entertaining to watch for that very reason of, of these two guys who are like, the thing about fascism is that only one person can be the best. Yeah. At the end of the day, there's one person and they're top dog and they're the most powerful. So what happens when you get two of these guys in the room? They have to clash. Yeah. And when Hinkle sort of starts falling back because he's not this big character that his bacterian friend is, it, it really, really, it forces him to go to more and more extreme measures to prove that he is the best. It is also incredibly childish and the two of them just behave like oh yeah teenagers they, not yeah like 12 year olds like yeah. it's real they literally wind up in a food fight at one point and i think that it, it really gets into the the character of these guys and the whole reason they're meeting is because they want to <laughs> yeah. they're they're arguing over who gets to invade austria and but again this is all played for laughs but we eventually see that they come to a deal hinkle is the one who's going to be allowed to invade and we see how this place that was meant to be a safe haven for the Jews ends up not being. And we get a very, in a film that is full of slapstick, we get another one of those moments that is cruel and devastating. Oh, it's heart-wrenching. It's, it's heart-wrenching. There is no happy ending, which is which really, really hits. Even the speech at the end is sort of a, no, we have to keep fighting. But there's, there's no... There's no running to the Swiss mountains like in The Sound of Music. It's very, very sad and accurate. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's nowhere that's safe. It's 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 bleak. But uh, one thing that I do want to say is um, another thing that's actually quite inaccurate, apparently, about th this movie versus what really happened. Uh, the relationship between Hitler and Mussolini was actually quite the other way around. Oh, really? Apparently, uh, Mussolini was intimidated by Hitler and actually kind of hated meeting up with him. But Hitler was a bit of a fanboy of Mussolini's because he was the original fascist. So Hitler loved having Mussolini around. Yeah, well, I mean, originally, because Mussolini kind of moved more and more to Hitler's views. Look, I'm not a historian. I wouldn't pretend to be. But yeah, I, I'm missing some stuff there, obviously. But, uh, yeah, but it, but it is well known that, like, famously on, on anti-Semitism, Mussolini started his career by saying that anti-Semitism had no place in fascism. And, you know, by the outbreak of World War II, he was all on board with it. Because of Hitler. Yeah, but it's, it's also funny as well because it keeps being seen throughout the movie that um, you know, the, 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 the not Germany, their planes and their tanks and their artillery aren't as good as the not Italian stuff, the Bacterian stuff, which didn't quite turn out to be true either. And there's lots of memes about Italian tanks in World War II as well. Mm. But uh, yeah, no, I, just, I just found the historical inaccuracies of it uh, quite interesting. Like, well, not historical inaccuracies, but the um, misconceptions the filmmakers had about what was going on at the time is, is interesting, no, especially knowing what we know now. You can say that about a lot of this film, but that's, yeah. you know, you can't hold that against them. Oh, like, no, no, I'm, I'm not holding against it, it against them at all. I'm just saying that 
you know, there, there are things they obviously didn't know, but in spite of the fact that they didn't know certain details, they got a lot right. I mean, they, they really kind of nailed certainly the ideology and the politics of it and the, um, the morality of the whole thing as well. They really, really nailed all that. Yeah. Another thing that I found really interesting, apparently, like this isn't confirmed or anything like that, but apparently Hitler did watch this movie. Yeah, apparently he watched it twice. Yeah. It's never been confirmed anywhere officially. No. But... But other kids, Churchill and FDR were big fans. Well, yeah, of course. Churchill is kind of surprising, but FDR, yeah. Mm. So you've seen, so you said to me a couple of days ago that this might be one of your favorite films of all time. I think so. I mean, I, I've seen it before, and you know, maybe this was just after watching it again. Um, I actually kind of had more of a, an emotional reaction to watching that movie than I have had to a movie in a while. You know, I actually. I laughed at parts. I thought parts were really, really funny, held up really, really well. There were parts I found really, really difficult to watch, more so than a lot of other movies. Yeah, I, I found it like a really effective way of storytelling. I, I, I got into the narrative, I got into it. Yeah, it was really, really good. Really well-made movie. They don't make them like that anymore. Controversial opinion, The Great Dictator, good movie. It hit the low notes of this is real. This is something that's happening. Mm. And you... it. We'll talk about what Chaplin's kind of answer is, maybe, you know, as kind of like the, the closing to this, this podcast, but you need to at least be aware of it. You need to, you need to look at this, but it also hits the high notes. It's really funny. The, the scene at the start of the movie where he's upside down in the airplane yeah. is unreal. It's, I was watching this going, how did they make this? Yeah. In, like if I saw it today, I'd, and I knew it was practical effects. I'd still be like, how the hell do they make it? Yeah. Because it's so good and it's so funny. It's it's hilarious. It, it's just really, it, it's, it's a really well-made movie. They, they they didn't cut any corners. They did everything for real, obviously, because they had to. But it, it, it just shows that the practical effects are, are actually really good. A lot of them really hold up. Um, they clearly put a huge amount of effort into the battle scenes, especially at the beginning of the movie. The scene where he goes into the fog, and it's a certain movie, so I'm not spoiling anything. And he's, he ends up getting lost, and we they, they show him getting lost in a way that's really effective, that's... only to appear with a group of soldiers again and be like, oh, I thought you lost us. I you... thought I lost you guys. And then be like, what's that? And they're like, clearly from the other from the he, other he, army. And it's just, he starts brilliant. charging into battle on the side of the Germans, going through no man's land, in the fog in no man's land, and then just gets lost, starts crying for his captain, and then just winds up marching with a bunch of British Tommies out of nowhere. It's it's brilliant. It's so well done. It, it is like a cartoon. It's like something... I, I don't know. It, it, it's absolutely fantastic. It's really, really well made. Really, really well done. Yeah, the bits at the beginning are very slapstick. It is a real... Mm. It, it does look like a, a real old, older version of Chaplin's movies. The, be- the, the beginning of the film does not prepare you, no. I think, oh, no. for where the film is going to go. It's still very entertaining, but I, I did kind of feel like that almost feels like it's from a different movie. Yeah. And if you just watched from this, the Fui, which we hadn't mentioned the phrase, the Fui is what they call Der Fuhrer. Yeah. Rising up, you know, you're not really losing a lot from that opening bit, other than the commander who he helps out, who later becomes a Nazi mm. and is maybe the one good Nazi I've ever seen in cinema. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe the only part of that film that didn't age well. Yeah, that's that's the part of the film that didn't age well. In that they, yeah, people who are clearly fighting inside of the Reich, the Third Reich, who uh, are redeemable in their motivations for fighting for the Third Reich. Uh, in that they're fighting for their country and whatever else. And 
no, no, that that arguments didn't really didn't really age well. But again, you know, as Chaplin has said, he didn't know about yeah, everything that was happening. But my point is, sorry, that you know, outside of that, there's not really a you could you could cut out the whole first part of that first little section. You wouldn't lose anything, other than it's very funny, and it's just, it's a good time to watch it. Mm. And I think, in a way, it was probably put in so that the people who come to see a Chaplin movie could get their like Chaplin fix. Yeah. And then he'd go, cool, now we're, this is what I actually want to talk about. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Now, now here we go into, into, into what I want to do. Now I'm having the fun. But yeah, the first part, it, it, it's it's well made and clearly it costs a lot of money. Like, there's the scene mm. on the anti-aircraft gun as well. Yeah, you go, how the hell did they, how the hell did they afford this? How did they put this together? The Even just the, the giant shell weapon, the big Bertha weapon itself. Yeah. You go, how the hell did they make that? You know, it's, it's, it's excellent. Yeah. It's, it's, and they clearly put in a huge amount of that, a huge amount of time and money and effort into a visual gag that is only a few seconds long. And then you cut to the rest of it. Like they really, really sell the consistency of the Nazis, um, dress code and sim- use of symbols and their obsession with power. Like, you know, they always get like the numbers. It's like all these rallies feel big. They feel yeah. like there's so many people there. The real focus on size and power. Yeah. They do a really, really good job of effectively communicating that, that idea that, that the thing that these guys care about, you, you don't, you don't even need to question it because you just see it in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now I know you wanted to talk a bit about the, uh, the way the media is portrayed in the movie. We kind of touched on it a little bit earlier on. Do you want to go more into that? Well, I thought it was really interesting that we are introduced to the Fui through his speech. Yeah, and he's given the speech when he's very clearly talking about his plans for global domination. Well, I, I should just say before, before you go inside, like he he's talking nonsense. He's talking gibberish. But it just sounds it's, like it's fairly. It sounds kind of like German to a non-German speaker. It sounds like if yeah, someone who'd never spoken German but kind of had an idea of like it sounds kind of like English but a bit weirder. Yeah, yeah. So, but my point is, it's very clear to the audience that, that this guy is detailing how he wants to destroy the world. And then you have a translator who is basically saying the exact opposite. You know, he goes on this massive rant about the Jewish people or about Jews and Jews are evil and Jews are, we must destroy them all this thing. And he, he, it's, it's a solid two minutes. Yeah. At the very end, you just hear the, the translator go, His Excellency has just referred to the Jewish people. Now, first off, that's a really good guy. Yeah. It's a, so much build up and perfect payoff. But secondly, it, it details the power of the propaganda machine and how everything is thought true. Mm. And beyond that, the fact that it's an English language translation, I felt like it was meant, it was sort of taking, even though it's meant to be Hinkle's personal translator. And I did feel like there was almost, there was a bit of a knock against appeasement here. Yeah. That it's like, we can pretend that this is what he's saying. We can pretend that. You know, he says like something that sounds like democracy stinks, liberty stinks, freedom of speech stinks. And the translator goes, Oh, it's fragrant. It's odious. Yeah. It's objectionable. We can try to dress this guy up that and make it out that he is actually, you know, flowery or that he is and he is not what he clearly seems to be. But that is, that is a futile effort and that is wrong. We need to address what this guy is. Yeah. Not hide behind. His sweet lies and the lies that we want to believe. That's that's a very good point. Yeah, no, I I think the um 
Yeah, the, the, the trailer, the newscast, or the, sorry, what, what, what are they called? The, um... the translator. I mean, there's the bit where he, he details all the countries that he's going to invade. He's going to invade Austria. He's going to invade Belgium. He's going to invade Finland. He's going to invade Russia. Goes through each of them in detail. At the end, the translator goes, in conclusion, the Fui says that to the rest of the world, he has nothing but peace in his heart. It's just like masterful, but also it immediately sets you on alert. You got you got to listen to this guy because the translator is not a, he's not something you can trust, and you can't trust anything about this guy. Yeah, his existence is a lie. Yeah, I think it, it's it's kind of trying to convince people more to believe what they can actually see rather than what people are telling them. You know, it, you, you can't understand what Hinkle is saying because he's talking gibberish. He's literally talking nonsense. He uses a few English words that kind of sound German to an English speaker. Um, mm. And it's it's all like liberty stonk, liberty stink. You know, it's 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 nonsense. It means, it means nothing. But yeah, the uh, the translator just completely completely lies, just just outright lies to the uh, to the viewer because he's reading from a prepared manuscript, which of course makes sense when you consider the fact that it's like the you know every everything about Hinkle is and everything about that the not Nazi party is staged. It's it's all staged. It's all theatrics and performance and of course then as we get to you know garbage later and we see the stuff with not Mussolini we really really get to even even at that time even before we truly knew about the power of the ministry propaganda within Nazi Germany Chaplin was able to identify this is his greatest tool and it's all crap yeah it's all lies it's all yeah it's all totally lies like even like there's the line where he is given a a child, uh, you know, the classic thing of posing with the baby, and the, the translator goes, even the baby is thrilled and seems all smiles at his excellency's attention. Like just the baby just looks like a baby, doesn't really know what's going on. But again, it's just like what you're seeing, what your senses are telling you, that's not true. And also, Hinko washes his hands after dealing with the baby as well. Well, yeah, I mean that's just. So on the nose, so good. Yeah. But I think that, you know, this film is it's a really good film. You know, we, we sometimes have a, do you recommend this to your friends, to recommend to, to your enemies? This is definitely a friends kind of thing we should recommend it to. But this film feels pertinent. You know, we talk about films that feel ahead of their time. This film feels of its time in that it talks about these guys as they understood them at the time. But I mean, in so many ways, when you look at the way they're talking about authoritarianism and they're talking about the use of the media and they're talking about especially use of approved media yeah there's a lot of stuff here that was relevant all throughout the 20th century and it's relevant to the 21st as well relevant before since during i mean it, it, it's one of the most foundational pieces of cinema when it comes to understanding authoritarianism or just even mm. ridiculing yeah no it's brilliant it, it, it's, it's well worth seeing in that regard but one thing that we've kind of skirted around i think long enough is the the speech at the end what has been by many people described as the greatest speech in cinema history, as spoken by the most famous silent movie star in cinema history. So to explain to people what happened through a series of, honestly, hijinks, that maybe maybe is actually the, the way in which this is set up is probably the weakest part of the film. Yeah. But that's Hinkle... What, apparently that's what Rob, Roger Ebert the famous film critic, apparently he said that that this was the weakest part of the movie. It it is the weakest part of the movie, but it's clearly just this film is already over two hours long. We need to kind of get to this point. Yeah. So the barber escapes a concentration camp. 
he um he and his uh his buddy escaped the concentration camp and it just so happens that Hinkle is a duck hunting in civilian clothes nearby the camp. He gets captured by people who think that he's the barber because obviously they're they look the same, they play with the same actor. And the barber people believe that he is Hinkle and the barber is instead taken to the place to make this grand speech when she's gonna declare that he is ready for world domination. He's going to be the next emperor. And so he stands up and just starts talking about how he doesn't want to be an emperor. He's had a change of heart. And how we all need to instead, we need to rise up as a collective humanity and fight for liberty as opposed to fighting for slavery. And here's the thing. The barber barely speaks in, in this film. Yeah. It's his first time really speaking at all. The first five to ten seconds, you are completely taken out of the film. The next five seconds, you're like, oh, is it Charlie Chaplin giving a speech? And then for the next minute and a half, whatever the speech lasts, you don't care because the speech is just so good. Yeah. That you, you just come around to it. Like, I'd, I'd never seen the film before, but I'd watched the speech a lot of times because I think everyone's watched the speech a lot of times. It's one of the most famous moments in cinema history. So I didn't really have the context for some of the speech, but, you know, in terms of mentioning specific characters, but I understood the speech as a whole. I think that, that once you get over that kind of weirdness of like, why is Charlie Chaplin giving a speech right now? It's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the Second World War. So that this was made well into the Second World War. And that period of history is dominated by some of the most famous speeches ever made. You know, a, a date that will live in infamy, will fight on the beaches, just an innumerable amount of some of the best speeches ever made. Even M. De Valera's response to Churchill at the end of the war is one of the best speeches in Irish history. You know, you've got loads, so many. And this one, spoken by a silent movie star, stands out as one of the best. It's it's epic. It's 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 just gripping. And it's hopeful as well. You know, it, it talks about the advances in technology and the advances in mankind over the last number of decades you know, we, we went from massive seismic shifts in culture and in society over the previous few decades and those shifts led to absolutely horrible things but those uh the advances in technology the shifts in in culture have so much hope in them as well and that's what we should focus on that's what we should try and do and we should ignore the voices advocating for hate and for violence and for wrong to your fellow man and just embrace one another on a human level and to embrace the technology to or to use the technology to embrace each other's humanity and by the way the entire speech is is put out just in text form in full i mean you can find the whole thing on youtube but if you want to read the speech it's all on the wikipedia article for the great dictator and basically it's, it's calling on the soldiers of the world to rather than just fight for and you, you can sense the kind of the a combination of his own kind of left-wing ideology but also maybe a holdover from the First World War, where he talks about, you know, don't just fight for these people who, who hate you, who don't, who don't care for you, who, do, who won't provide for you and won't provide for all people, you know, who, who won't give, quote, you know, give the youth a future and old age security. Instead, he wants them all to come together to build that better world. The people have the power to make this life free and beautiful, is what he says. And, it's it's sort of a 
I, I mean, I think every single ideology would probably try to claim this, but it's definitely, in my view, a utopian anarcho-communist kind of belief, I believe, where we would all just live in harmony together, building off our beliefs. And look, you can make the argument that it's a very clearly a social democratic speech, you can make the argument that it's very clearly a, a, a I mean, it's definitely a speech on on the left, because we know Chapman, but if you want to make the argument that actually this is a speech about liberalism, I'm sure you could make a very good argument about that. But the point is that he is trying to put forward not just a really good speech, but he's trying to detail a worldview. Yeah. The world doesn't have to be like this. The world doesn't, we don't have to careen into another world war. We don't have to, you don't have to fight for someone who treats you with nothing but contempt. And that's something that's very consistent with his portrayal of the Fui, is that at the end of the day, he doesn't, he has nothing but contempt for the people. All he cares about is himself. You don't need to fight for the people who only care about themselves. You can fight for yourself. And, and he doesn't necessarily even mean fight in a, in a warlike way. He just means organize, come together, and we will build something better. Yeah. And it's really, really good. I would recommend everyone just have a listen to it or have a read of it. Oh, it's magnificent. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a speech advocating for, um, inclusion rather than, uh, exclusion and for, uh, nonviolence, but fighting for nonviolence, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, the fact that he opens with Jew, Gentile, black man, white. I mean, to, to even mention that, you know, a, a black person to be an equal to a white person at the start of speech would have been incredibly unusual for, then alone, never mind cinema. Just this is an American film from a time where Jim Crow was still an act. Yeah, this is a film that wants a better world for everyone. Now he does use the phrase "You are men, you are not machines." You know, it was all built for men. You, you, you could pick that up. I think that's just the language of the time. But I think the fact that he he clearly wants a a better world for for everyone is really clear. It's an incredibly inclusive speech. It, it, it does mm. try to include as many people as it can, but it, it's it's less about. I think the focus is obviously less on intersectionality, as it you know seems to be a focus on a lot of these things these days, and the focus is more just on just a, a, a common sense of humanity that would cross everyone, and also just I think it's it's really important that the, I think one of the ideas he's trying to get across that's really important is just a shared connection of humanity between individuals that seems yeah. to be getting lost at that point in time, for, at least from his perspective. I just, I think this is really good. And first off, just as, a, as an act of political, if it's an act of political communication, Jack, what do you think of it? And secondly, just as, as, a, as a speech, do you think that it, see, like, look, we both, we're both gushing about it, we both think it works. Do you think that it made sense to include it at the end of the film? Do you think it should have been something separate? Do you think it should have been Handle differently, brought about differently, or does it does it not matter because at the end it's just about here we are. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that he could have really done anything differently. I think I think it's a fair complaint. It, it, it does detract from the movie, you know, as as a film, as as a as a coherent story. That speech does detract from it. It, it stands out. It doesn't really fit in the speech. The the, the lead up to it. Uh, seems like it was just thrown together just as an excuse to put the uh, the poor Jewish barber in place of the the the, fui, the pure. Um, but considering it was a film released in February of 1940, um, 
you'll do whatever you can, but that's a big shame. And certainly Jerry Chapman would have, or did. And he ignored any advice to the contrary, and he made sure that that, that was going to be in it to, to convey that idea. Now, I don't think satire really has much of an impact. I don't know if it really ever has had like an actual tangible impact on policy, necessarily. I don't know if it's ever stopped a dictator. I don't know if it's ever done anything like that. I, I can't really think of anything. But I think that as a means of articulating an anti-fascist sentiment or a, a pro-democracy sentiment, I think that that is one of the best that's ever been written. Yeah, and I'd also say that, like, you're right when you say that the, that the, the, the speech in many ways detracts from the film because it feels very out of place. But the film adds to the speech. Yeah. Like, the the way in which the various fascist dictators are shown, the way in which the soldiers are shown to be, you know, we have our our good Nazi, which, again, maybe the one thing in the film that didn't age well, but he is a soldier who is sort of doing his job. And it's like, well, you don't need to fight for these guys. You don't need to be part of this. You can You can work with the people of the world, and we can all make things better together. This film does a really good job of setting up what the speech's message is, which is that the guys who you are fighting for are pricks. And they only care about themselves. At the end, like, obviously there's so much more. They're evil, they're monstrous, they're mechanical men with hearts of hearts of machines or whatever. What kind of, machine hearts. You know, machine men. Machine with hearts. machine men with machine hearts, exactly. And you don't have to you don't have to go with them. We can do something better. Well I think I think that is sorry to interrupt, but I think that is the argument, certainly the post World War One argument where you know, I got rid of the glorification of warfare. You know, it's certainly the British soldiers riding home to their family, riding home from the front lines from the trenches of World War One, riding home to their family and just kind of getting rid of the the notion of a of war being a glorious romp or, you know, a glorious adventure. I think it kind of ties into that notion. You know, it's the uh what's the what's what's the term? It's the the lions being led by donkeys. You know, the yeah. uh, the, the the soldiers on the front were the brave heroes, but they were being told to do stupid things their their lives were wasted they were thrown away by idiots i I think it's that kind of that kind of notion yeah and it's it's interesting that in the speech he references adventure but he references it as the adventure we can go on together through democracy and through building things as a as a as one humanity yeah you know it's it's yeah everything is through maybe that prism but it's it's a a beautiful prism jack i think (laughs) well what about yourself do you do you think that people should watch this movie yeah, absolutely. You should watch this movie. If if we haven't sold you on this movie yet, uh, I apologize because I don't know what more we can do. This is a really, really, really good film. It's funny and it's heartbreaking. And the speech at the end, it is thought-provoking. And in fact, a lot of this film is thought-provoking. And it's relevant to today, which you would not think you would say about an 80-year-old film. Yeah, it holds up. It holds up for in nearly every way. And I think that if you have look two hour movie, it does feel it. I think you know it's yeah, and not because it's bad, but because because the tone so often can be quite quite grim. Although it breaks it up really well with different bits of levity, but the the point is you should absolutely watch this film. Yeah, and you, I would hope you would not regret watching it. Yeah, no, it's an excellent experience. It really is. It, it can be kind of strange for a lot of people watching going back and watching a two and a, or a two hour long black and white movie. But it is, yeah, you, you'll it'll stick with you in a, in a positive way. Like you'll be thinking about it for a lot longer than two hours. Yeah. So I think that was the the great dictator. 
I certainly enjoyed that a lot more than Sacha Baron Cohen's The Dictator. That's sort of a double bill you can do if you hate yourself. That's what we did. Yeah. Basically. Could, yeah. And, you know, we're going to say The Great Dictator, that's your recommend to a friend movie. The Dictator is a recommend to an enemy movie. It's similar names. Don't get them confused. You know, if you if people come around to us and say, you know, you said that the speech at the end of the dictator was like incredibly moving and powerful and it wasn't that it was it was fine. It was like pretty good, but it was relatively biting satire, but it didn't move me a bit. No, 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 you're That's the other one. Did anyone give birth in Yeah in the film you watched? On, you said something about you said something about a moment in this movie it was the most visceral piece of comedy you've ever seen. Was it that the part where he's hung up by the news or something like that? No, I can't remember what what I said that about. Yeah, the most visceral or the worst piece of comedy I've ever seen was that ad birthing scene in The Dictator. Well, not ever, but like that. Yeah, it's. <laughs> um. Yeah. So don't don't come don't come crying, screaming, whining, marinating to us about The Dictator. Watch The Great Dictator. Yeah, definitely do that. And next week. Yes. So here's the, here's the thing. Hopefully, if we've time this out right you will be watching you you will be listening to this this podcast you know start in march that means st patrick's day is coming up guys so we we want to do a another st patrick's day double bill you know something just before st patrick's day something just after st patrick's day you know i think it might be a little fun the film that we are going to by the way just just so you know we're, we're both irish we are both irish sorry continue yeah what's the film what's the movie the film listen jack okay yeah i've got a little film for you so as you guys might have picked up on. I pick a film, then Jack picks a film, and I pick a film, then Jack picks a film. Jack, have you ever heard of the film The Foreigner? The Foreigner? Is this the movie where Jackie Chan fights the IRA? I will see you next week, Jack. All right. Brilliant. Where Jackie Chan fights the IRA. Fantastic. See you then, dear. I have never seen this film. No, I don't know I. if you've seen this film. No, I've never seen it. We're going to have a blast. <laughs> and... Yeah, until then, everybody, thank you very much for listening. You can follow me on social channels at Dear Magie Burke on Twitter and on TikTok. Uh, if you have, if you like the show, let me know, let us know, rate and review wherever you are. Tell a friend on, about this one. Tell a friend about the, the show. Tell enemies about that. Tell enemies actually about this show as well. Maybe wait, wait, do, you, do you think many people have enemies? You're not living life right if you, if you don't have a few enemies. That's what? You may be off mic. Okay. Okay. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.